All right, all right, all right. Welcome to another edition of Shabbat Lounge. This is Matt. And Jake here. Jake, we have a special guest. Uh, Jake, who are we talking to today? Today we have Billy Bond from Perma Pastures Farm here with us, and we're going to discuss some uh, homestead-type things and some Torah-type things, and we'll just uh, mix it up today and see what we uh, can find out. So, Billy, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here with both of you and to, uh, you know, get to know your audience a little bit. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we appreciate you being here. I, and I had seen you on a another podcast that I like to watch, and that's the Texas Boys. And I, I was like, this guy is interesting and seems super smart. So uh, it seemed like a good fit. Jake, Jake and I uh, dabble in... Uh, homesteading and we, we we intend to do more of it and our children are inter- interested in all these things and so we we are like uh, many other people out there that uh, we're just just interested in trying to learn how we can do it better and you seem to be an expert about it so uh, tell us a little bit about like how how, do, how would someone find you where do they go sure um as you said i'm billy bond um you know, and you guys have the distinction of actually getting my last name right because usually they confuse me with Barry Bonds and they think I'm plural when I'm just singular. You know, there's just me. He's just um, one man, guys. That's right. Just just a one-man gang, even though I have a son that's out your way and he's doing some pretty big things too. But, yeah, we you can find us at Permapastures Farm on YouTube, I think. Now, guys, you'll have to bear with me a little bit because I'm something of a Luddite. Um, I'm basically the guy that's standing in front of the camera, standing in front of the microphone during the podcast. But by and large, I know very little about text. It's all I can do to just operate the phone. And um, so, yeah, you can find me on YouTube. Uh, I hear we got a just found out today that we had a Facebook page. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. So we got that. We got the Instagram and uh, that, yeah, that's where you can find us. Uh, we're we're pretty easy to find. We got a website, uh, permapasturesfarm.com, and we have the podcast, the Permaculture Pimpcast. And uh, of course, pimp is an acronym. It's not a, you know, we basically took a bad word and tried to turn it into something good. And it was a, it, it was really an endeavor with a purpose. So, uh, yeah, that's where you can find us. Well, why don't you tell us what PIMP stands for? Yeah, it seems a pretty um, seems a pretty awkward thing to explain. Now, in the beginning of doing all this, you know, we've been at this for a long, long time, and I was very reluctant about having, you know, having done radio in. I was on the biggest talk station in Kansas City um, for for years, and I got out of the talk business because it was just filthy. I mean, it was absolutely mm-hmm. awful. People telling you what you can and can't say, and of course, me being, you know, I'm not completely or at all reliant on um, the actual radio station. I basically said whatever I thought was, well, basically I'd say things that at that time were really not all that popular. And it was the biggest talk station in Kansas city. So um, after I got out of that, I was like, I really, I want to sink deeper into the, into being a Luddite. I just want to farm. I want to do my thing and I want to be invisible. And so my son had been after me. By this time, we'd moved from the Kansas City area. Actually, we were a little bit further away from Kansas City, but it was the nearest big town. And we moved from there down to Texas. And my son kept at me like, hey, you know, we're doing some pretty 
unusual stuff here, man. Maybe we should evangelize this information on, on YouTube. And I kind of, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And then finally relented and said, okay, we'll do it. So we, we started it and being who I am, I, I don't know how to do anything halfway. So I'm thinking, okay, if we're going to do this, then let's figure out how to do it. And then after we got to doing it for a while, I was like, well, maybe we should go ahead and get into the podcast game. So Going back to your question, where did the pimp come from? I used to call myself the permaculture pimp daddy. And the whole reason for that, the whole reason for it was, now I'm like, if I'm going to use that term, it's got to be an acronym and it's got to be something positive. So it stands for permaculture is my passion. Now, since that time, I've developed a number of other passions, which maybe we'll get into today. One of them being rescuing children from child sex trafficking and it seems a pretty unusual name for, well, the entire purpose of it was when we first started this whole journey, the idea was to reach out for the non-traditional people that might, that didn't even know that farming was a possibility. People that might be a little, you know, darker skin like me, who were never going to be told by a guidance counselor that this is a viable yeah. career path and a way to feed your family. And, you know, most of the people I knew in the hood had always been in something of a food desert. So I'm like, okay, if there is a way I can speak to these people, speak their language without becoming lewd. And if I could do that and maybe rope some of these people in here, well, what I didn't count on was the fact that, you know, I ended up getting rid of the moniker, the permaculture pimp daddy, because I'm like, okay, it's something of a gimmick. And I'm feeling that the information that we're providing is solid enough that I shouldn't need a gimmick. Either you're going to mm -hmm. get it or you're not. And so I, I basically left away from that. And so when we decided to go ahead and do a podcast, and the whole purpose for that was there are times on YouTube where I feel like, um, I guess, for cathartic reasons, I feel like I, I have to say what, something about what's going on in this world. Well, every single time we do it, YouTube would basically come down on us like a ton of bricks. And so I'm like, okay, I can see the handwriting on the wall. And I'm like, okay, so let's start this podcast. So my friend came up with a permaculture pimp cast, Eric Sider. And then from there, we ended up going with it. And I was like, all the things I can't say on YouTube, the things that are happening in this world, the things that I am bitterly opposed to, uh, whether it's the... Well, hopefully don't get you guys. I'm not sure what I can can't say, but basically uh, I'll try to be as fanatic as I can. So basically the, uh, the pestilence, the manufactured pestilence, as I see it, um, that thing that begins with C word that I can't say, or they will basically dump your channel. Maybe they won't these days, but, um, all the things I couldn't say, whether it was that or the, um, Matt and I were talking a moment ago before we started airing, you know, Matt had talked about, you know, some of the, um, the trends that are going on socially with their, with their kids out there. Right. And I'm like, okay, I'm bitterly opposed to just about everything I see going on. How do I have an outlet to do that? And so that's what brought us into the podcast. And what I didn't expect is that, you know, it, to me, I was a little concerned. I was like, okay, I'm, I, I know the radio business and I'll do the podcast. Like I do live radio because we're going literally at a hundred miles an hour from dawn till dusk. And the only way I was going to be able to do a podcast is if I could treat it like talk radio and not have to do any editing. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what we've done. And we tried to basically drop mountains of information on that platform that we know in a million years, we'll never get away on YouTube. So we use YouTube as a teaching modality 
where you can watch what we're doing, especially for the people that are looking to get into this space. And then we use the podcast to talk about basically everything. It's a, if I'm honest with you guys, it's basically a cathartic way of me getting off my chest all the things that I know I can't say on YouTube. So, and then I try to get away with, but we're heavily suppressed, especially at this point. And um, it looks like the last bastion, last frontier of free speech is uh, sadly right here in the uh, podcast space. So uh, sorry for the long winded response. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. It's definitely getting pushed into dark corners. Um, but that's where the light needs to be, right? Is in the dark corners. So, Hopefully uh, that works out, but um, yeah, that's that's a good uh, explanation. And uh, I think too, um, you had mentioned um, needing an outlet for other things that you know, because we have you know you have your permaculture channel, and then but we're you know we're you know multifaceted people, so you have you have other aspects of of yourself and of what you deem important, and you need to get it out there. So. Yeah, you kind of have your little boxes that you need to need to fill. Yeah. And so you got the podcast for that outlet. So well, it's, it's good to have those outlets. Can also say too that part of it is um it's funny because I know a lot of homesteaders that are in the uh YouTube space. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of homesteaders that do that. What I found shocking is that when you meet these people face to face, at least the ones that are legit, because uh, sadly there are a lot of frauds out there in the, you would be shocked if you knew the full extent of how many people are not really doing this work, but they pretend to be for YouTube. But the thing that I found most shocking is that in the spaces where, where you find yourself in the spaces of a lot of these people, you find out that they have the same um, liberty minded worldview that i have but they never say anything about it in the videos Mm -hmm. and there's this fundamental fear because we treat you know if i were to get kicked off youtube tomorrow well you know i got plan b d all the way down i was in the preparedness long before i ever was in permaculture so there's always you know there's not one single point of failure but what I was finding out, and that's why it was such a joy to come across the Texas boys, because I was like, oh, my goodness, man, I felt like I was in the wilderness. I didn't realize that other people out here were saying the same things, being treated the same way by the by the powers that shouldn't be. And I'm thinking, OK, well, maybe if I start standing up and saying these things, because I hear these people privately say a lot of what I say, but they never say it publicly. And I'm like, OK, yeah. man. For crying out loud, man, we're losing this country. I mean, we got to yeah. stand up and start saying something. I mean, you better wake up and smell the corruption or we're all going to fall asleep drinking the hemlock. And right now, it seems like everybody's just going face first into this good night. You know, we were talking about free speech a moment ago. And, you know, fundamentally, most Americans don't know that that First Amendment isn't just free speech. There's five things there. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, the right to assemble peaceably and petition the government. But but kids aren't taught this stuff, and nobody's talking about this stuff for the most part. And so I'm thinking, okay, if I can use whatever, whatever, um, I don't know, whatever celebrity I'm able to muster through this platform or whatever, look, man, what good is any of this? If we lose our country, just like the Bible says, you know, what what good is Luke gaining the whole world if you lost your soul? So yeah. I'm I'm just trying to stand up in any way I can, but 
I'll be honest with you guys, it's, it's starting to become something of a frustration because all my life I've been doing this, whether it was on talk radio or whether it was on a job site. It was like I was always standing up for people that won't stand up for themselves. Mm. And I've come to this realization that I really believe, I, I honestly believe this in my heart of hearts. Now, this isn't going to be encouraging to a lot of people out there, but <laughs> if you want me to keep it real, I will. Um, point of it is, find me another country in the history of humanity that has ever hit this level of depravity and decadence that has Come ever corrected it. itself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, I lost 300 bucks worth of knives because I said that on my podcast, and then some smart aleck had to bring up Nineveh. And I was like, okay, well, they still got dealt with, you know. (laughs) They got dealt with later. They got a little bit of a stay of execution, but I had to give away the knife set because I'm like, okay, close enough. But the point being, yeah, I mean, it was a very clever answer, and, you know, he was probably right. But outside of that, nobody, I I defy anybody besides Nineveh, (laughs) provide me a single society that has ever hit this level of depravity that has ever corrected itself without the crucible of really hard times. You can't well, find that's, Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, there's the the ups and downs, the uh, valleys and the mountains of, you know, where you go through hard times and that builds real men. And then, uh, then we get comfortable. That's like one of the biggest problems right now is comfort. Everyone's addicted to comfort. And so then you get comfortable, you get uh, fat on, on the bread of the land, and you forget how you got there, and you slack off, and then trouble comes again. And you, get, and then you got your weak man mount, uh, mountain, and you're and now you go back into the valley to build strong men again. And I yeah, know that's kind of what we what we're seeing. Yeah, and I like so much of what you're you're saying, um, especially uh, in, in reaching communities that haven't been reached before with this message. And and there are many food deserts, and especially in uh, you know, certain, I mean, and we see it everywhere, you, you know, and there's so many people that don't know how to eat right. They've never been shown. They've never, that, that no one has ever taught them how to do these things and, or how to farm. Those things are, have been lost. And it used to be so ingrained in us. You know, I grew up in a culture where we, we gardened and we saved our seeds and my grandma used uh, mayonnaise jars or whatever jar she could find. And she saved those seeds and would label them. And next year she, she had seeds to put out again. And, you know, that, that's something that got lot that's been lost and we need to restore it. And, but you're right about the country and, and we can't save this country with political means, uh, in political parties. Um, you know, the, the, the things that we have to do are, 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 are teaching people the truth and teaching, you know, even things like, um, having people having men learn what it means to to train up another man you know there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that raise boys yeah. and they're just raising little boys that grow up to be little boys and instead of raising men uh, who know how to be strong independent and can do things on their own and um, but anyway um, just yeah we, we applaud what you're doing and uh, we i like the name i like <laughs> you know how uh you know uh, when, when you tell somebody they're like the pimp cast so, uh, but uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like uh, when sword. you. It is a double-edged you... sword because some people will not even give it the time of day. You would be right. shocked at how many people will not come on my show because of that name. And I'm like, well, examine it a little bit. Let me tell you that it is, in fact, an acronym. Um, but, you know, to your point, Matt, you know, there was a guy with a whole lot of sense. There are no political solutions for spiritual problems. 
yeah. That's a fact. I mean, it really is. And I'm, I'm seeing every, as something of a historian, um, I can't help but see the overlay of every great culture, society, all the way from Babylon till now. And I can just overlay ancient Rome. There was a there was an article that came out years ago on LouRockwell.com. It was uh, Schumpeter's Rome. And in every single, I'll put it this way in a nutshell, we're doing in just over 200 years what it took the Romans two millennia to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, everything that's from the debase, debasement of our currency, depletion of our soils, you name it, every single metric, the depravity of the people, and where good is bad, good is bad, and bad is good. I mean, right. what does the Bible say about that? Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And we've we've hit that place. So, you know, it's a joy to at least uh, see, know that there's guys like you, you, you all out there that are doing some incredible things. And Matt, also, I will say as a little side note, food deserts aren't just in the hood. I want to make sure I point that out. Yeah. We were living in Decab, Texas when I was down there. And that's where my son is right now. And you know what? One of the worst food deserts I've ever seen in my life were in the rural places in America. Yeah. I mean, where, you know, obesity is rampant. And in addition to that, in addition to all that, you go to any grocery store, like in Decab where we were, they had a Brookshire's. And I mean, it's just rotten stuff on the shelf and you know, junk food. I mean, that's really the buy, you know, that's by and large what everybody's into. So it's, it's not, I, that's what I didn't realize when I came on this journey. I, it wasn't just the people in the hood. It was all the people that I knew in the rural environments Yeah, that are honestly some of the worst when it yeah. comes to, you ain't going to find a whole foods out in the middle of rural Texas. No, no. And they're not even interested. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's partly the culture, it's culture I grew it's up culture. in, yep. you know, I grew up West Texas, we cotton farmed. And if you know anything about that, we used a lot of chemicals. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, we didn't mask or, you know, this was, you know, the 70s and 80s and um, before, you know, before uh, safety protocol kind of became a thing. But um, but people out there, when you talk to them about organic, they're like, oh, that's you can't do that. That's dumb. Why would you do that? That, that, that doesn't work. You know, and um, they they just can't have it. They they will not listen to any of that. They think it's nonsense. Well, they better they better wake up and think about it now because I mean, you know, our number one export in this country is soil. Yeah. That's we we export more soil down the Mississippi mm-hmm. than any other thing than all products combined. So well, and then the, and one of our all. biggest uh, products is uh, lawn grass too. Yeah, so, and that that's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, we we got everything, you know, we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. That's really the society that we've we've become. Mm-hmm. And when you hit that level of depravity, this is why, you know, we've taken another tact in how we do things is like, you know, more and more on our program, we're, you know, we're making sure that, number one, make sure you're spiritually prepared, number one. And then right after that, you know what? You might want to think about having some beans and bullets on hand with the way things are unfolding. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a combination of a number of things. I mean, it's crazy out there, but, you know, we're not given a spirit of fear, but a power and love and and of a sound mind. So when we get down text to all this stuff. That's right. And I'm still convinced that the majority of people out there, especially in uh, certain certain areas, um, are good. You know, that if you break down on the side of the road, somebody's going to help you. 
you know, there's still quite a bit of just good people out there, but I think they are quiet and they, um, but, but they're there. And, uh, but, but we appreciate you, um, doing what you're doing. And that's, that's pretty fascinating. And I agree what you're saying about the deserts, you know, they, uh, I believe in the little town we live in. It's it's kind of like that. I mean, there's some grocery store here, but it, it, it's all they can do is build fast food. Mm-hmm. And, and you mm-hmm. see people just live off of fast food. They live off convenience, as Jake was talking about. You know, if it's convenient, it's in a box. They like it. Yeah, yeah but and, on, the, on the flip side of that, you know, that was one of the big things uh, before we left. It was, okay, as a permaculture farmer and designer, as what me and my family are, it was you could not sell a chicken for what what it should have been worth not in yeah. any of the rural environments mm-hmm. i mean the, the truth of it is going right back to we know the price of everything and the value of nothing i mean everybody we knew would eat hot dogs every night for dinner but you had a $80,000 pickup yeah. you know so it was like we have it's it's like we got everything backwards everything is inverted it was like, yeah, this guy would, I mean, they're, they're barely, you're eating the worst food in the world. You're feeding your kids the worst food in the world, but you know, you're, you're worried about, you know, you this. Got that stuff though. Well, I yeah. knew guys, I knew guys, even when I was back still in the electric trade back there, I knew one guy in particular had a boy that was suicidal and i'm like hey here's a here's a couple of uh you know christian based books that you might want to look at oh i don't need to look at that psycho babble Mm-hmm. But he sat there spending, actually, he was from Oklahoma. And if it would floor you how much time he spent figuring out all these trade magazines, which which is the best truck to get. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, well, yeah. it seems like your priorities are in line there, but maybe misaligned. That's the thing. I yeah. think, uh, you know, as a country, our priorities have just tanked. And uh, I think that's, you know, again, it goes back to the comfort thing. It goes back to you know, whatever uh, makes you feel good, do it, that kind of thing. And uh, like you were saying, I think uh, we're seeing ourselves in the, the middle of a Romans 1 judgment situation where Yah says, you know, if that's what you want, I'll I'll let you have what you want and we'll see what you get from it. You know, cry out to your, your gods and see what they see. Call on them and see if they save you. And I think that's kind of where we're seeing ourselves. I can't help but wonder if this isn't the strong delusion that the Bible talked about, because it's like, um, if we're not there, I think we're definitely on the road to it. Uh, it's, it, you know, if I'm sorry, I don't mean to go so dark here. I'm just trying to impress upon the people that, of the, um, look, I'm, first and foremost, you got to have your soul prepared. Amen. But after that, you know, you might want to be seriously thinking about I mean, I could give you just from the, I could probably fill volumes from the top of my head of all the different signs and symbols and all those things that are unfolding just from economics mm-hmm. where you can see this thing falling apart. And I think I just don't understand how the Lord can bless a country that is responsible for the dreadful things that are going on right now and being champions of it, even, you know, all the way up to the highest echelons of power in this country. Right. So, I mean, if you know anything about history, even from a secular point of view, even from a secular point of view, you have to know that it doesn't bode well for any society that engages in the things that we're doing right now. It's just amazing to me how long-suffering the Almighty must be 
to to let us go this far down the road. I I often wonder how bad was it in Sodom and Gomorrah that we aren't. I mean, I don't know what it was like. I can't. I can imagine, but it's hard to imagine how much worse it must have been than this. So yeah, I, <laughs> yeah I've seen a lot of people saying, uh, you know, eventually uh, we may he may owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology if he doesn't intervene here. So. Which, you know, it, it does seem like we're headed down a bad path for sure. But but well, I, I want to kind of redirect us if I can. And so we talked about, you know, on our channel, we talk a lot about, you know, our faith. We do a lot of study. And, and, and we also, when we interview people, we always like to hear their story. And, um, you know, I think you've got a, an interesting story. And we'd kind of like to hear how you went from normal Christian to, to kind of what you do today. And I wanted you to to, to share that with us. Sure. Um, I grew up, um, I kind of got to give you a little bit of background. Uh, early on, my mom and dad were both uh, convicted felons. They decided to go on a bank robbing tour when with those two, I mean, this is like straight out of like Hollywood, raising Arizona kind of stuff. They decided they were going to go on a bank robbing spree throughout the country uh, with six kids in tow. And they got away with it for a while. So, um, Early on, I was raised, my, me and my five brothers, we were raised by a recently widowed grandmother in a small town in Pennsylvania, and she was a member of the Church of Christ. Oh, well, hey. Yeah. That's, so, that's what I grew up in. Yeah, so that's, that's what, what I grew up in, too, Pennsylvania. <laughs> I'm sorry? <laughs> so Matt grew up in uh, Church of Christ. I grew up in Pennsylvania. So I grew up in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, well, that's where I grew up initially was in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philly, about 30 miles. So, and then also Lancaster, which uh, nobody, but people in Pennsylvania know how to pronounce that word. It's Lancaster. Lancaster, Um, Yeah. Yep. Lancaster. So, uh, grew up around there and, um, you know, early on and then ended up in Oklahoma when my mom and dad finally got out of the joint. But, you know, growing up with my grandma, there, single grandmother, it's one of those situations where you don't know that you're poor. The only meat we ever ate was organ meat and it was disgusting, but it was, you know, she kept us alive. And so mom and dad got out of the joint. We basically all moved to Oklahoma, like something straight out of the Beverly Hillbillies. And out there, you know, if there was any, you know, my two oldest brothers uh, coming from the background, you know, by every metric, we should have all been in prison or dead. Well, um, you know, my two oldest brothers had something of a religious background, although I would call it something akin to being Baptist. And then we get out to Oklahoma and then my mom and dad or my mom was Catholic. My dad was probably agnostic at the time. And so there really wasn't much in the home at first outside of the church bus that would come out on Sunday. Windsor Hills Baptist Church, they'd come pick us up, and then we'd go there. It was just a way to escape the the, um, <laughs> the mayhem that was going on at the house. That's another story altogether. But anyway, that was really my early on, um, you know, any upbringing I had was basically from that. Well, I'd go to the Army. Long story short, there's a lot that goes on between there. But after I got out of the Army, um, went back to Oklahoma foolishly, and, um, you know, just kind of went wherever I was invited. So I found myself in another Baptist church, but I kept seeing these things that just didn't make sense to me. Um, first of all, the whole notion of dressing up to go to a church just didn't seem, just didn't sit well with me. Um, and for a whole bunch of reasons, 
And it turned out to be, I was very turned off by it because it wasn't like you go into the door. The first thing out of everybody's mouth was, what do you do for a living? And I was always appalled by that response. Like, and what I found out, it was a way for them to qualify whether I didn't realize that this was a business meeting. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize exactly. I'm here to, I'm a very troubled person at that time. I uh, won't go into all the nature of it, but when you grow up in such an abusive environment as we did, you know, there's going to be scars. So here I am, you know, married, got a little boy and I'm trying to figure out how this whole world works. I'm, I'm in this church and nothing makes sense. I'm seeing the girls dress up to this church in very skimpy kind of stuff. I'm hearing the pastor go on about, and I'm hearing, I'm seeing all these things that just don't make sense to me. And so that basically, it had been that way for years and years and years. Well, I ended up working on, and this is when I was living in the Kansas city area. So basically very much um, of the view that I know God exists I'm doubting everything because, you know, I looked at, I look into some of these rabbit holes and I'm like, the only thing I'm a hundred percent sure of is, is because I've examined it was Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And outside of that, I wasn't sure of anything. And so I wind up in Kansas city and then I work around the seventh day Adventist and I didn't, I didn't know who they were or what they were and what they did. And then I was around some Anabaptists down in Texas and I remember this guy, Mark, he kept talking about the Sabbath. And I was like, well, you know, at first I was like, well, what difference does it make? And then he explained to me how, yeah, there is a difference um, and why it makes a difference. And I'm like, okay, yeah, uh, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Okay, I'm with you there. And then once I, because I was already, I was one of these person that went down a rabbit hole on things like 9-11. Then I went down a rabbit hole of things like the Kennedy assassination, Oklahoma City, you name it. I probably got a PhD understanding about all these things that really in the aggregate don't amount to a whole lot of, right. well, but this one, when he explained it to me, that this was a manufactured lie to change it from Saturday to Sunday, then I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm on board. And so all of a sudden the, the seed was planted. Now, it didn't get watered till many years later, but it was at least planted. And so later on, um, I find myself in this preparedness community. And then my friend Darren also was saying the very same thing. So here it is. I heard it from Mark. And then now all of a sudden, this guy, Darren, I'd kind of forgotten what Mark had said. And now I'm really paying attention. And I'm like, hold on. So now all of a sudden, I find out that there's other you know, apocryphal books like the book of Jasher, which is obviously referenced, uh, you know, uh, the book of Enoch and all these other things. So I kind of go down that rabbit hole and I'm looking into these things and I'm like, okay, never heard about this stuff before. And so, and then I'm also getting into cons Christian conspiracy podcasts. I hear about people like Steve Quayle, LA Marzulli, and I'm realizing, oh my goodness, you mean to tell me that Genesis six. So I'm like, I'm realizing, okay, all this stuff that everybody just kind of glossed over, whether it was a Sabbath or Genesis 6 or all these other things, I'm like, okay, man, there's too many data points here for me to think that this is just a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So then I started, and this is more recently, I get to the point where my son is actually living here, and 
Now, keep in mind, I got all these different data points. Haven't really searched it out, not to the extent that I should have. And then my son just basically says to me, because I'm one of those people that, I mean, you may call me a lot of things, but nobody's ever called me lazy. And so when I got a project, when I'm on something, man, I will stay on it day, night. It doesn't matter, seven days a week. And then my son said to me, you know, Dad, even God took a day off. And so um, I'm thinking, okay, well, I, okay, you need a break. Go ahead and take it. And so I still wasn't getting, I still wasn't getting the point. And and then all of a sudden, it was just just concerning that alone. There were so many other people I was coming across, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go ahead, and I'm gonna be, you know, what does Samuel tell Saul? Is better to be. <laughs> It's better to be obedient than to sacrifice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, um, we're going to try this Sabbath thing and we're going to see what's up. We're going to yeah. see how, and I'll be honest with you guys, it, it felt like what people must go through when they quit an addiction. Um, first time I did it, I was like a pig on roller skates. I was like, what? okay, now what do I do? What can I do? You know, what is it okay to do? And so I, the first week I tried it, I'm like, okay, well, six o'clock Friday, we're just basically going to shut everything down. We're, the whole family's going to do it. And my son is pretty excited about that because he's wanting some time <laughs> off anyway. And uh, so I did it the first week and I just, it felt right, but I still was clueless. I will tell you this. I'm a quick study because by week number two, I was looking forward to it. I was like, okay, well, I work for me. What's the consequence of not showing up? You know, when Mark told me what he went through as a Seventh-day Adventist, where all of a sudden, because, you know, when you work as a construction electrician, if you don't work this overtime, you're going to be the first one laid off. Mm -hmm. And so he was always, he told me when he first made this transition into being an Adventist, that that was one of his big concerns. And I was like, well, okay, how stupid is it for me? Because I don't even work for anybody. I work for me. So... Second week rolls around, and I was looking forward to it. I'm like, okay, so now what am I going to do? And so I realized, you know, I started seeking the help of other people. And then things, I'll tell you what really put the nail on it, is that by anybody's metric, they would have said I I was a pretty successful person in the things I do. But I got to say, it went on steroids when I started to honor the Sabbath. And it was, and it happened nearly overnight. There were some weird things that went on. Like, um, I mean, like we had, a, I know this is a little sideways here, but you know, there was uh, what really, really, really brought me around to doing this is that there was a little girl down the road we were having to look after. That's a whole nother story unto itself. But I did a de facto exorcism on this girl. Um, and it was, I, I did it wrong. Apparently it was weird. It was crazy. And it happened at my house. So we were, there was some custody battle going on. And then it was at that time where uh, that was, I'm sorry, that was a critical part I should have put in the middle of the story. But that's what happened, I think, between the first and the second week that made me say, okay, man, I really got to start. I got to examine this. I got to, if nothing else, man, I know it's right there in the doggone. Look, I am just aggravated at that point that all my life I'm sitting here, like so many other things, believing a lie. And a manufactured lie at that. This was done on purpose. And I'm like, okay, so I don't know much about anything else, but I'm going to get this right. This 
is one that is not hard to miss. It's easy to do. So that's exactly what we started doing. And it was like the broken pieces that, you know, in so many different ways, the broken pieces seem to start coming together. By taking that time, you know, I'm having better ideas for um, for the farm. I'm having better experiences. Things are fall, falling in order. And then, and then all of a sudden, I find myself kind of drifting away again. Like, okay, I'll just do this one thing. No, that's not how it's supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden, it was like the Lord would do something to get my attention. Like, nah, you know, I mean, how long suffering must I be concerning you? You know, yeah. Um, so that yeah, so that's that's basically the big the beginning of the journey and where we are right now. I'm not as well acquainted as I ought to be. As you know, it's it's almost shameful that you know I can tell you pretty much anything you want to know about certain aspects of farming. But there's certain aspects of my faith that I still regretfully have lots of work to do. And I'm working on it and I'm doing it and I'm making it a daily thing to where I'm trying to get. But you know what? I know I got a lot, you know, I'm now the next thing is, is okay. I got the Sabbath thing down. Now what's next on the list? So that's where I'm at. I mean, I'm basically realizing that. Here I was thinking I emerged from Plato's cave regarding all these other things, realizing, not realizing that the most obvious thing was the one I was just painfully absent and didn't know about. So once again, sorry for the long response, but that's basically. No, no, that's great. I think that, you know, most every most all of our audience are Sabbath keepers and uh, we can all relate. And, you know, there's so much freedom. You know, I, I grew up in the Church of Christ and. I went to Church of Christ Seminary, which was a like a private Christian school in Lubbock, and you know, um, but but it was always taught to me that the law was bondage. And when I started keeping Sabbath, I was like, I'm looking around, going, I don't understand why this is bondage. This is pretty awesome. Well, why haven't I been doing this longer? So you know, there's there's a lot of freedom, and and and, and uh, you know, it's just hard to argue. It's hard to say that's bondage once you experience it. You know, you can't. And you know, for us, we we you know we do what what, what you might call Torah observant, or um, you, you know that. So so not only do we keep the Sabbath, we eat biblically clean, and we keep the feast. And kind of like kind of like what I think I heard you say at one point. We studied Christmas and Easter, and we're like, whoa, wait a minute. I've been doing that my whole life. I don't think I'm doing that anymore. And so then, then we found out oh, that uh, that the father had these festivals and these moedim, these feasts, and he appointed them and said, "Hey, I want you to meet with me on these dates and hang out. We're going to hang out on these dates." And, and then the fact that they line line up exactly with Yeshua and uh, the Messiah and uh, how you know his the plan of redemption and. Uh, you know, it's like, well, why would why would I do a fake festival that I've made to point to the Messiah when I, I've already got real festivals that point to the Messiah? You know, sadly, that's that's where I was, and, and this is almost embarrassing for me to admit. You know, if you read the the two Babylons by Alexander Hislop, and he explains basically how. In you know 312 AD, basically Constantine got a hold of things in Rome and said, "Okay, we got all these different factions over here. Let's go ahead and make a little hodgepodge of a religion where you all get a little bit of. So the Christians will throw something in here for you, and then for you Babylonians, guess what? 
Uh, your goddess Ishtar. We're going to turn it into Easter, and then your fertility rituals with bunnies and rabbits and egg, how, rabbits and eggs, the whole nine yards. Here's the embarrassing part: is that I could tell you chapter and verse how all that stuff began. Now there is a great deal of argument concerning, um, you know, the tree and the Christmas tree. I don't care whose version you pick of that; it's all pagan. I mean, it doesn't matter which one of them's right. But sadly, I could tell you chapter and verse about all those holidays. And I know it's all a journey for everybody. But honestly, the Sabbath was one of the ones I got on least. And it was it was like you said a moment ago. It was like, okay, where's this been my whole life? Because I look forward to it now. It's like I'm kind of setting things up. I'm like, okay, sun's about to go down. It's about to get real. Yeah. I'm actually, you know, I'm going to... You know, it's my goal right now. I'm trying to memorize all of the Psalms. Okay. And, uh, that's, that's a, that's a goal that I have. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, Sabbath is a pretty good time to maybe work on some of that. And then every single day I work on it a little bit more, but I'm like, okay, that's where I really put in the lion's share of some of the things I'm trying to do in that regard. But it's, it's, it's astonishing to me how I could be so awake regarding so many other things even from a biblical standpoint, I don't know where you guys stand on some of this Genesis 6 stuff, but I was honestly pretty upset about the fact when I'm finding out, hold on, man, you mean to tell me that there's another version of this, yeah, that it yeah. wasn't oh, Sunday? Yeah. You know, I mean, when I find out all this stuff, I'm finding out, and like I said, the Sabbath was one of the things that should have been the easiest for me to get on board with, but sadly, it was it was the last. Well, I think uh, that's, uh, your journey, like from our standpoint from a lot of the people we've talked to isn't all that uh uncommon actually i think a lot of people i mean even in uh, my family you know first uh you know the pagan uh uh holidays was like kind of the first thing that kind of jumped out and that was before we started keeping sabbath you know we we're like man i can't i don't know that i can be tied to this stuff anymore mm -hmm. and then you know uh I think a lot of people, they start keeping Sabbath and then things start to fall into place for them and they start realizing, well, because you're take, now you're taking that time and spending it in the word instead of on whatever else you, you spend your time on, you know? And so now, now you're starting to see things because, you know, you, you've met him at his appointment and he's, he's like, okay, I'm showing up and we're going to go through some stuff. And that's when he opens your eyes to things, I think. Well, that's where you guys are kind of handy. I was listening to one of your podcasts earlier today, and I'm like, okay, well, um, I'm pretty new to a lot of this stuff, and I'm still in the position of trying to examine it. And uh, because honestly, it's 180 degrees in so many different ways of everything I was kind of taught. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, if you're telling me that these learned people, what I what I struggle with, and this is why. Mm -hmm degrees don't mean anything to me i don't i have a brother who has more degrees than a thermometer but doesn't have a whole lot of common sense you know and so just because a person's a doctor or a phd doesn't give them a greater share of common sense than any one of us in most cases from my experience they have actually have less you know i got all those things i got a military education trade education college education farm education and it really doesn't amount to a hill of beans when it comes down to brass tacks on all this stuff yeah. You know, it's it's funny that some of the most learned people I know didn't even graduate high school. Mm -hmm. So we tend to think that just because this 
this preacher is standing up in front of this church or because he went to a seminary school. And even though he or he may be sincere, well, he may be sincerely wrong too. Right. <laughs> right. And well, just and, like these people were that were teaching me. Yeah. Well, and, and, and they meant well, and, and I'm not bitter about that. You know, I have that in my family too. And, um, you know, I don't think they were bad people. They just, they didn't know. And, you know, something that you said, I think this is something we need to be praying. And I'd ask you to join us uh, in your daily prayers, you know, praying for your own children and your your relatives, uh, you know, and the, the kids growing up that that they and it goes back to something you talked about earlier with the strong delusion. We need to be on our knees daily for for children that we know that they would believe that that God's word is true and as Romans eight twenty eight says, God's word be true, every man be a liar. And that they would believe God's word over anything a man says, over the talking heads on TV, over the people with degrees behind their names, the professor, the teacher, the Bible class teacher, whoever, uh, that they need to believe that his word is absolute truth and everything else is questionable. And man is bending it to benefit himself, most likely, if you look close enough and look behind it enough, you'll probably see somebody with benefiting. And, and I think that's a great prayer for us to pray for for our children and the generations coming up, that they would do that, because they are going to be deceived. And if they don't have that as their base, we know that the Scripture tells us that they are going to be tricked and they're going to believe the wrong thing. Well, how much, how easy is it these days to be able to propagate these sort of things? You know, I, I'm not sure how old you guys are, but I'm, you know, I'm 53 years old and, you know, I had the benefit of being able to see this world before, you know, the advent of computers, be, before computers became so ubiquitous, you know, they were around, but they were basically stone age. And then you see the rapidity at which, I mean, you see the growth, like through Moore's law, you know, what do they say? Every, the computing power doubles every year and, yeah. and then the space that it's put on is like cut in half yeah so here we are where we have nanotech we got all these different things and these kids never knew what it was like to memorize a phone number they never knew what it was like to drink out of a garden hose they never yeah. knew what it was like to work to be in any other paradigm and sadly it's like that movie ready player one was turning out mm -hmm. to be a documentary and mm -hmm. i think that's what yeah. the powers that shouldn't be intended in all this so going back to your point, the ability to find that truth is, it seems, it seems to me that it's becoming increasingly difficult just because of the fact that every single way, it's like you almost don't even want your kids or your grandkids to be out of your sight yeah, because yeah, it's like yeah. every single thing out Everything's there. Everything's out to get them. them. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing you're talking about, there's so many men that don't realize that they are in the, the battle of their life. And 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 uh, there's a lot of men that kind of take it wrong and they get the real tough guy and they and there's there's definitely you need to be able there's to do that. that. There's time for that. But so much more important is the spiritual side of it. And so many men just they're not watchdogs over their family, over what comes in, what they what what they listen to, what they read, who they talk to, who their friends are. They just are like, whatever you do, do you you, you do you you'll figure it out. And um, they just allow other people to raise their children in essence. And, and, and men have to wake up and, and, uh, take a more active role. 
yeah, but you got the Super Bowl playing. You got Taylor Swift <laughs> out there. You got all yeah. these. I mean, it's. I'm saying this almost tongue in cheek, but the point of it being is uh, once again we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. It really yeah. that is the that is the mark of a depraved society. Yeah. I mean, in every single overlay in ancient Rome, you see it unfolding right now in America. And the thing I have this shirt. And boy, that it does it drive. I mean, I live near Asheville, North Carolina, probably, probably outside of San Francisco, the most liberal city in, in the United States. Now, I don't live there. I live, you know, in a small town away from there, but I have to go there from time to time. You know, the most offensive, I wear a lot of shirts that have messages on them. Like, I don't know what I'm wearing right now. It says, defund the media. Well, I, I got this other one that says, make men men again. Mm. Um, you know, play obviously on Trump's make men, you know, make America. Yeah, right. Yeah. That is by far the most offensive shirt that I wear. And you want to talk about crazy night, man. These people will lose their ever loving mind. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now they might be thinking that it's directed at all the trans testicles that are running mm -hmm. around in Asheville, but no, it's really directed at I'm for me, yeah. at the regular guy who has acquiesced and said, you know what, eh, I'm a taxpayer. I'm going to send my kids to school, not realizing that, you know, the best education, say what you want about the messed up way I grew up. But honestly, the best education I got was at the dinner table. I mean, mm -hmm. as this we put the funk and dysfunctional <laughs> in my family, believe me. And but at least I got at least some. At least I, I was. At least I learned at that dinner table, despite you know all the fighting and the cursing and the other things that went on. At least I learned how to be a critical thinker, to not just simply accept something. You know, to ultimately, it led me to understand things like the trivium, how to know the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Not just take anybody's accounting for anything, but this is where men are woefully, you know. I'll put it this way. Let me let me give you a great example of what I'm talking about here. And there, there's a biblical over overlay with it. Okay, so you had the roaring 20s. You had a chicken in every pot. America was doing great. Everything was wonderful, right? Then, 1929, what rolls around? Stock, oh, stock market crash, Great Depression. We lost, nobody ever talks about this, but we lost anywhere between 8 to 10 million people to starvation during the Great Depression, but you never hear about those numbers. Then all of a sudden, what happens? Whether contrived or otherwise, I tend to believe the former. All of a sudden, World War II breaks out. And so that same, you were talking about a moment ago, how we go through these periods of, you know, you got weak men, then strong men, then we go through these cycles. It's called a saculum. If you read the, um, the book by Strauss and Howe, it's, um, oh, shoot, what is it called? The, uh, the, the Fourth Turning. Mm -hmm. we can go all the way back and they cited up to 500 years, but remember Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, you know, that we got these patterns, they keep overlaying. Well, Strauss and Howe proved that every 80 years we got basically a saculum where we go through these, these periods where you got, you know, no good generation. Then all of a sudden you have this great calamity that unfolds. And what does it build? The greatest generation in that 80 years. Well, that's exactly what happened with the great depression. What did it do? That same generation that was at the end of a saculum that was considered good for nothing ended up becoming what some call the greatest generation. And what created that generation? The crucible Diversity. 
of really hard times. That's right. Adversity makes man. Prosperity makes monsters. Well, we've been pretty prosperous for a really long time. And so we're, we're overdue. We're about that time to where things should go sideways again. But going back to your central point, that the only way to fix depravity is the crucible of really hard times. And that's where I'm hoping and I'm praying because I think we're on the precipice of some really, really harsh things that are about to unfold. I Man, this is going to sound pretty morbid, but there's a part of me that's almost welcoming it because I know that there can be no healing, that men are not going to be what they're supposed to be until they are called upon the same way that that same teenage generation in the 1920s became the greatest generation after the great during the great depression. So I hope yeah. I was coherent enough on that. I, I don't know that I painted no, it well, but no, I, I 100% agree with you, you know, and that that's another thing that I pray for, especially some, some children in my family that I know, and you probably have children like this too, that they live, they're growing up in a pretty cush environment. And I pray that they have enough adversity that they will turn to, to God. Uh, because, um, you know, I think that's part of it. Some people live in such posh living conditions, they, they have no need for him. You know, everything is taken care of, everything is provided, and then some. And so they, they, they have no room for him. And, um, you know, we need some adversity in our life. You know, discipline is good. You know, and we have a society that runs away from discipline, but, uh, but, uh, but it always makes us better. Well, we run away from the pursuit. We, we're victims of comfort. Yeah, that's really what we are. We're victims of comfort. Um, you know, it's funny if you ever spend time in a third world country or what people call a third world country, it's, it's pretty astonishing. You'll find out that these people, the same things, the creature comforts, the things that we enjoy, the things that we quote love are basically absent there. But how is it? Every one of these people to a person seems fundamentally happy. Yeah. They seem they don't have the concerns. The they don't have the running water. In many cases, they don't have the hot water. I remember being near a um, in uh, a tribe in Panama one time, and um, they were in dugout canoes, and they were alongside the Chagres River out there. They were still natives, very very native at that time. They were the happiest people you'd ever want to meet. But by any American, by any Western standard, they were third world. That's why I think we got it backwards. I think mm -hmm. we're the third yeah. world. I'm surprised other. I'm surprised some of these countries aren't sending missionaries to us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really seems like it ought to be yeah. going the other way around. But yeah, I mean, sadly, it takes you know to come come full circle with this thing. It's it's what it's going to take. But honestly, I think had that had that. 1920s generation, my grandmom's grandparents' generation, had it gone on the way it was, it would have been a complete wreck. It would have never developed into that greatest generation. Now, do we have another, you know, where do we go from here? I don't know. Um, is America on the precipice of falling? Well, I don't know if that's the case, but our dollar certainly is. Yeah. Um, we can look at this in 10,000 different ways, but fellas, there's almost a side of me, and, and, and I don't want to sound morbid when I say this, but the truth of it is, I know what the antidote is. I don't want to take it. I don't want to yeah. drink castor oil. But I know that if there's going to be any kind of recovery, we have got to have. I mean, even our homeless people are overweight in, the, in this country. 
I mean, they got cell phones. They're overweight. You drop off food to them, and they're like, "Hey, could you get me some ketchup when you come back?" I mean, <laughs> it's it's this is this is insanity, and um, I think I think the Lord is about to. I don't. I mean, nobody knows the timeline or how this may unfold, and you know, some people will make the debate that we are the um, we are Genesis. I mean, not Genesis, but Revelation, the Great Whore of Babylon. What Revelation seventeen. Some people make the case that that's us, you know, whether it is or isn't. I think a case could be made either way, but the point of it being, it doesn't end well, no matter how you stamp it out. Yeah. I, don't, I don't see the good end of this rainbow. I mean, how many times did Israel have to go sideways? I mean, these are the people that saw the Red Sea part. Yeah. The yeah. same people are building calves. I mean, there's a whole story behind <laughs> yeah. all this. Oh, yeah. You just mm -hmm. saw what happened. You saw yeah. these unbelievable things. And, you know, I often thought that, man, I wouldn't have been one of those people. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe you would have been. Maybe it would have been, <laughs> maybe right. Maybe might have been. Well, it's just like when when Yeshua talks about, you know, people are like, uh, they come to him and they ask him to do some miracle. It seems like it's raising someone from the dead or something. And he talks about, yeah, it, it, they wouldn't believe that. They're not going to believe this either. So, um, you know, I think that unfortunately we, we, it is easy for us to, uh, to forget. And just like, just like you were talking about earlier, you know, he's very patient with, with us, uh, you and I, and he was very patient with them. He is very long suffering, but there is a time when he turns us all over and goes, you know what? Kind of even like what he did with Pharaoh. Okay. This You've is had what your you want to do. Do it. It's yeah. a, uh, it's on you. Yeah, yeah but that, at some point, you know, he's given you the last chance. You know, and that's something I have to remind myself of also because I've been forgiven of so much. I got to remember at times that Jesus yeah. died for them as well, and yeah. it's easy it's easy to become almost er well, at least for me, to think, oh my goodness, man, why can't these people see this? Why can't they figure yeah. this out? Why can't they? Well, you know, um, you know, somebody could have made the same case for me. Before I recognized, they're like, "Hold on, let me get this right, dude. You're understanding. <laughs> you understand how all this other stuff went down, and you're just now waking up to the Sabbath." Yeah. Um, and I got a lot to go. I mean, because now it's not just. It, maybe it was this way for you guys as well, and you know, you could probably mentor me on this. But it's like now I got to go back and re-examine everything I thought I knew. Yeah. Yeah. That's the hard that's, part. And, you know, and, and a lot of people don't want to do that. You know, you have to be willing to deconstruct your faith. And that's hard. You know, and it's just like, um, yeah, you have to get alone with those things and wrestle with them and work through it and admit, I uh, didn't have all this figured out. Yeah, and, it takes some humility. We always say that uh, there's three things that you kind of need. And one is to recognize that it's Yahweh that opens eyes and unstops ears. Uh, Number two, you got to admit that you're probably wrong about a lot of things. And then three is you got to be willing to change the way you're living. If, if you're going to make, if you're going to, you know, start following his will. You know, it's funny because um, I've seen, I, I knew guys up until this whole, um, the sweet and sour sniffles pestilence that, you know, finally that was introduced <laughs> upon us. You know, it's, it's, it's astonishing that I knew guys that were like, back in my preparedness days who were dyed in the wool. And I don't understand this. You know, I always wondered why does every atheist and every 
vegan have to tell you that they're vegan or atheist within 10 minutes 10 minutes of knowing them um but it was amazing how many of them i knew that were in the preparedness community well when the sweet and sour sniffles came around these people the same people that were like dyed in the wool vegans all of a sudden they're all about it well they're, they're all of a sudden saying hold on if i can see through this and this thing is this insidious Mm-hmm. then the only thing that makes sense is this is definitely a battle between good and evil. So okay. if that be the yeah, case, the other way around. Yeah. So I've seen one guy in particular who came to, I mean, he's still, you know, very much a baby and all this stuff, but one of the last people that I would have ever, and it was, it was honestly what happened at that time that brought him there and his wife as well. Hmm. So gotten to the point where, you know, I think we're seeing the beginnings of it. Nobody wants to see this inflation. You know, I don't want to see. Here's what I what I don't want to see with all the things that I see unfolding. I don't want to see old folks flipping coins, determining whether or not they're going to take their necessary heart medication or whether or not they're going to eat cat food that day. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, those are the things I don't want to see. But sadly, this is you That's know the direction we're headed. Yeah, this is. But sadly. It is that way, but also at the same time, okay, every time Israel, you know, I mean, they did some pretty awful things. I mean, I was just going through, um, you know, Book of Kings the other day and can't remember the guy's name. He was one of the kings. I mean, he put his own son in a fire, you know, to the fires of Moloch. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they get tossed over into Babylon. Well, they didn't get to come back until they repented, right? I mean, until they got things right, they weren't going to come back. And you see this theme over and over and over again. How many, you know, how many times, how many examples do we need that in just about every case, I mean, I can't think of anybody except, I mean, I'm sure there's other examples out here, but typically it required some harsh punishment for people to say, you know what, um, you know, gee, I really got it wrong here. Um, you know, you may wind up with, you know, what, what were they told when they were in Babylon? Build houses, get comfortable. You're going to be here for a while, nephew. You're going to to be here a while. So, but what did it do? They straightened up. And then it's just like you said, we see this, it's almost like a sine wave. You know, it's Mm -hmm. everybody's on the straight and narrow. Things are good. Then all of a sudden it goes sideways. But here we are, you know. Yeah. What's kind of odd this time around is, well, I don't know. I don't know how many of these I've lived through, but, but, uh, it just seems like, uh, you know, you would think, okay, uh, well, they're poisoning everybody. Well, they'll wake up for that, and then they don't. It's like, oh, man. It's like, and then, okay, they're doing this to your kids. Oh, everyone's going to wake up now. Nope, they don't. And it's like, man, what's it going to take for people to wake up to what's going on? Touche. My wife and I. My wife and I had that very same conversation because I was like, okay, every bar that I set that would wake people up and make them say, okay, enough, they've crossed every single bar. The only bar they haven't crossed 100% yet is the firearms thing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, somebody said, well, they come after the guns. That's what, and you know, I, I seriously disagree. You'll say it's funny. It's, it's all the people that had the guns that were like, I can't leave my house. Like you have the guns. What do you mean you can't leave your house? Who's keeping you in your house? It's ridiculous. 
It, yeah, so that's exactly what I'm getting at. I mean, they come after your kids. They're saying, okay, we're going to put this pestilence in the shot schedule now. And, um, you know, I don't know where you guys stand on any of that stuff. I mean, I have a pretty firm grip on it. Um, we're against it all. <laughs> I, I suspected that might be the case. I didn't want to be too presumptuous. But, yeah. you know, the... Um, you know, the same people that were like, oh, you do this, you cross this line. And it, it's like every time it's like that kid, that bully on the school ground, cross this line and we're going to fight. Well, they cross the line and you make another line that's further yeah. back. And so we keep acquiescing and they keep advancing. And this is once again, you know. Yeah. When your red line doesn't mean anything, then. Yeah. And, you know, it's like no matter how bad it gets, but, you know, sadly, you know, it, this is what it takes, and this well, and that's is how, that's how you know it'll happen again because no one, no one cares to get to the bottom of it, and no one cares to you know for accountability with it. So they're like, okay, well that worked. We might as well just keep doing it. So well, just remember though, I mean, there, it's not. You know, it's funny how these things work because think about it: the World War One generation. So what was that from nineteen fourteen to nineteen nineteen, basically? The World War One generation thought that all the kids that ultimately served in World War II were just no account, weren't going to amount to anything. Well, it took those hard times to make that happen. Yeah. Now, I don't know what to say. In this case, I mean, they weren't dealing with people that were changing their genders for crying out loud. You know, this is the kind of hermaphroditic stuff that went on in Babylon right. and in ancient Rome even. And then here it is. We see the overlay happening exactly right now. So... Um, I'm just hoping and praying that that the Lord just gives us a stay of execution, so to speak, because we don't deserve it. I mean, you know, all of us, uh, man, it, it almost it's makes a, it's me a good proud. time to get right with Yah. You know, <laughs> it's a good time to uh, uh, repent and uh, read your Bible while you can. Yeah, while you can, and you better be burying a lot of it in your heart too, because I mean. Yep. You know, I'm I'm very I won't I won't go into any details, but we're very prepared here. But you know, a whole lot of people that went into captivity were prepared too. So you better bury that word in your heart. Yeah, that's the and, thing. It's like you can prepare all you want, but uh in the end, make sure your trust is in, in Yah and not in your stuff, you know, that you're preparing with. It has to be in him, you know. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because I'm thinking, okay, well, what if they were to take you away? Let's think about this for a minute. Let's say they were to nab all three of us and they threw us in a in a camp, which, you know, anybody thinking that that's not possible, well, examine a little bit of history and it might just very well happen, especially now. So let's just say um, that happens and we have no access to the word, at least in a written form. Well, the only access you would have is what you put up here and what you put in your heart. Yeah. So that's part of the reason why, I mean, there's just this, I, I just hope and pray it doesn't happen, but if it were, if it did, it would be nice to know that, you know, at any given time in my mind or to myself, I can start at Psalm one and say, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly or standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, you know, and then maybe if I could go through all of that, because it gives me comfort. Right. Every single time I say that, um, there's a lot of biohacking that I do around here. One of them is cold showers. And the only way I get through it is when I'm reciting the psalm as I do it. I know this sounds crazy. I know it sounds weird. 
look, man, I don't like cold water and I don't like being in there, but the <laughs> only way I'm able to extend it is like, okay, I'll start with Psalm one. I'll stay in there long enough until Psalm one's over with. And then let me go into Psalm two. Why do the heathens rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Okay. I'm there. Now let's go into Psalm three. You know what I'm saying? It, it gives me comfort at a time where I'm imposing discomfort among on my own self when you get in freezing cold water. Well, maybe I might have to do that very same thing again, where I'm locked up with you boys somewhere that maybe we don't want to be. And the only comfort we have is the only comfort that's worthwhile. And that's the one that we bury in our hearts and our minds. Yeah. Amen. What what a great challenge uh, to memorize scripture. And and um, you're in good company when you do that. So many, many great men and women uh, before us have done the same thing. And uh, I applaud you for for doing that. That's that's a worthy endeavor for sure. Yeah. You know, uh, just on that note, once you get to Psalm one nineteen, there's a there's a uh, there's a series of songs that are just singing Psalm one nineteen. Fantastic! It's from Zion Christian Press. Uh -huh. So if you get a chance, listen to those. Listen to it in the song, and it's fantastic. No, I'll definitely check it out. Um, I got a little ways to go to get there, but I'm going to try. Uh, I'm going to hopefully get this done in uh, in record time. Uh, and I feel like it. I just, I'll be honest with you. I told you what 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 was the impetus? The impetus for that was um, I told you about the little girl that I did an exorcism mm -hmm. on, which was mm -hmm. bizarre. And, uh, yeah, that whole situation, boy, that, I mean, that ought to be on a paranormal podcast, but anyway, um, it was weird. It was strange, but it happened. And it was like, I felt this, like start with Psalm 91, you know, and, and I don't know, I, and I had to do it and I worked on it. I was like, okay, I memorized Psalm 91 and it's not like it's some talisman. Don't get me wrong, but it was like. It was, it bring the Psalms especially bring me comfort. When I think about, you know, King David and, you know, the incredible exploits that he did for most people to have that power and what he was would have corrupted most people. Mm -hmm. I mean, absolutely corrupted them up one side and down the other. And then look at what is in that Psalms. I mean, the, the, he's spilling his, this is a king and he's spilling his guts He's talking about crying so much that he's wetting. I mean, he's practically bathing in his own bed. And you got a king that could demonstrate that level of humility. And I'm thinking, okay, boy, you got a long way. To, you got a long way to go. But yeah, Psalm 91, I started there, and then I'm like, okay, well, maybe I better start from the beginning. So uh, yeah. So that's exactly yeah, that was that was quite an adventure. But uh yeah, it was yeah. that thing with the little girl that made me uh you know, get right with the, with the, you know, put out the impetus of uh, me starting with Psalm 91 and then kind of working forward from there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Well, I, I, uh, I want to kind of flip, move us to a, a little bit different place. Um, I think Jake had some questions and we kind of want to go into some other things you're really into. And I know that there are people that listen to us who, who are into, uh, into the homesteading movement. And I think Jake had some questions kind of along those lines he wanted to ask you. Yeah. So why don't you just real quick kind of share a, like a little bit about uh, what you do on your 
homestead and uh, uh, like kind of the type of content people will find on on your on your uh, YouTube channel? Sure, um, you got no shortage of YouTube channels out there. So one of the things that we've been trying to do from day one was how do we feed all of our animals for free, which is exactly what we do. Um, and one of the gateways into doing that is using a method that we, instead of sending our son off to college, we sent him to Australia to go learn under the very best Jeff Lawton down there. And then, you know, instead of, even though he had a full ride scholarship to college, we're like, okay, yeah. So we sent him to Joel Salatin. We sent him to the Earthship Academy. We sent him to all these different places. So basically he has a PhD understanding. We basically use him as our emissary to go out and find the most cutting edge stuff in the world bring it back here. We cross train each other. So then my wife does a soils course and we do the same thing. So I said all that to say that our claim to fame is that, uh, we try to show everybody how to feed everything for free or for as little money as possible. And so through the gateway drug, which is probably chickens for most people in most homesteads, we use a method and we've used a method and we're probably, well, without a doubt, the foremost experts on this planet, it's called the chicken tractor on steroids, where it provides all the chicken you could use, all the eggs, a cubic yard, at least one to three cubic yards of compost every single week. The only difference is, and it, and it runs entirely on compost and food scraps. The only difference is, is that in that system, it does, the more holistic you become, the more it requires out of you. So it is, it is uh, heavy in terms of how much your involvement is. But it can be done. And these are one of the things that we're trying to evangelize in terms of raising our chickens and all the other things is that as the cost of everything gets higher, we're trying to show people modalities in which they can still feed all of their animals and essentially their families with very few inputs. So that's really what we do. We focus also on, man, you know, one of the things a lot of homesteaders are missing are the perennial crops. Things like your nut, your nut crops, your fruit crops. Everybody is in the annuals. Mm-hmm. You go out there, dig the ground, put your annuals in. But I'm like, okay, let's get you off that. Let's get you off of that annual cycle. Yeah, it's still fine to do that, but let's get you looking in the perennials. So we're showing people how to do food for us, and then we've turned them into tactical food for us, where we basically put our nitrogen fixing uh, trees on the outside, and all your productive on the inside. So. You know, we're showing people how to do orchards, how to do food for us, how to grow your chickens, every single animal on a homestead. We try to show you how to do it for free and for very little cost. And at the same time, pulling yourself. I mean, think about it. One of the most liberty minded things you can ever do is decide what you will and won't put into your mouth, into your body. And so if we're still on that bandwagon, I mean, think about it. If we're still on the nitrogen fixing or the nitrogen, basically when this whole thing went down in Ukraine, all the corn farmers around here were like, oh, snap, man, this is going to mm-hmm. be a nightmare. And so it was, you know, but we use systems where you require no reliance on any of yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So instead of being in this uh, cycle of NPK, we're in the cycle of looking at a soil food web. Instead of everybody seems to think that nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus is what you need to make things grow. Yeah, it'll make it grow, but it's not nutrient dense. So what we find out is through the work of people like Dr. Elaine Ingham is that instead of worrying about NPK, let's worry about the bacteria in your soil, the fungus, the nematodes, the protozoa, and their distribution. 
For example, um, and this is, believe me, this is a tangential way of answering your question. So instead of going out there putting MPK on the field, we say, okay, what does it need? Let me go ahead and test this soil. Let me look under the microscope and see what's wrong. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to find in just about, okay, you guys are in Texas. I'll give you what you find in Texas. Go to any farm field out there, send me a sample, and I can already tell you that you're probably, you're going to have no fungi out there. Right. And you're going to have mostly bacteria. And if you have any protozoa or any nematodes, they're almost almost certainly the parasitic type. They're not wonderful. So I would take that sample and say, well, gee, what do I need for it to be ideal? Let's say, okay, if it's going to be regular, if you're going to go out there and put a, a row crop in, well, in the perfect world, if you have a 50-50 distribution of bacteria and fungi, you're probably going to have a bumper crop. We know that. It's not, it's not guessing. This is a fact. So nobody has anybody that's a commodity farmer. Nobody tells them this. They tell them, no, you go out there, you go get a bank loan to go get your seed, go get a bank loan to go for your fertilized, all this stuff. But nobody tells them that, hey, there is a way off of this roller coaster, and it's learning about soil life, how to cover the soil, how to use your animals, how to run them in a holistic way to where we don't forget this uh, sustainable stuff. We're talking about regeneration, mm-hmm. you know, the way the Lord intended it. And we find out that every step that we, if I go out there, and I'm going to use this as a microcosm, if I go into any healthy forest, you know what I'm going to find? I'm going to find seven layers, probably going to find eight if it's really healthy. I'm going to find an overstory, an understory of trees. I'm going to find a shrub layer. I'm going to find a vine layer. I'm going to find a ground cover. I'm going to find roots. And I'm going to find an herbaceous layer. And then if I'm really lucky and if it's really healthy, I'm going to find a fungal layer. So I'm going to find eight layers. That's how the good Lord set it up out there. We find out every single time that we replicate and we move a step towards going out there, looking at that healthy forest. Every time we take that and then bring it home to our farms, we see unbelievable. We we see. I'm struggling. I'm usually not at a loss for words, but what we're seeing is nothing short of astonishing. So instead of going out there putting man-made chemicals out there, no. We go out there and we replicate what we see and how the Lord set it up. And then we say, we go out there, we walk around and say, okay, I want to see how this is done because I want to take it back to the farm and replicate it. Every single time we do that, good night. Everything becomes that much easier. But every time you go out there and put a chemical on it, or fertilizer, what you're really doing is creating salts in your soil. So at the end of the day, we teach people to not be a sheep farmer, not to be a chicken farmer. No, be a microbe farmer, be a grass farmer, Mm -hmm. work at those fundamental things. If I worry about that bacteria, fungi, nematode, and the distributions, and I find out, okay, gee, how how do I straighten out this pasture that's denuded of a soil life? And we find out that in a single season, we can straighten it out from where it is to where it should be in a single season. It happens that quickly if you if you use the critters that are down in the soil that are supposed to be there. So that's exactly what we're doing, and we're teaching people how to do this. Um, you know, maybe you don't have microscope skills like us. There's still other ways to go about it. There's ways to run your animals to where 
instead of going out there, it's like Greg Judy, one of the great grazers on planet Earth, lives right there in Missouri. He calls it the Columbus method, where you put your cows out there in the spring and then you find them in the fall. You know, what we find out is that if we can take and holistically mimic what the bison used to do right here in the United States of amnesia, you know, we've forgotten about all this stuff. If we can mimic what the bison were doing, we find out that, wow, this stuff not only comes back, but it comes back like gangbusters. Guess what can't live? Now, so instead of that farmer having to constantly beat back all the weeds that pop up, guess what we find out? Is that if we put the right soil life out there, the weeds don't want to be there. They don't want to be there. Guess what? You will never find a thorn or thistle in a compost pile. Yeah, that's You'll true. never find it there. You will always find thorns and thistles in denuded, denuded soil. So that's exactly what we want to do. We want to take, I know this is a long-winded answer, but man, I'm so passionate about this stuff that I got to point out that farming doesn't have to be incredibly difficult, but it does require work. You're going to have to get out there. You're going to have to use your powers of observation. You're going to have to go through earth care, people care, and abundance given to the previous two. You're going to have to learn about some of these principles. It's going to take a little bit of hard work and foot to butt, but honestly, when you look at all the ways that we're going about doing this, especially when it comes to your perennial crops, you're doing all this work right now to give to your future self, mm -hmm. to your generations down the line. Where I'm planting a pecan out here, well, you know what? I'm never going to get any nuts off of it, but the great-grandkids will. Mm -hmm. Maybe great-great-grandkids, you know? Um, yeah, that's part of our problem, too, is short, uh, short uh, foresight. That's exactly well. That's why we. That's why we keep raping. You think about it. What we call farming in America is really mining. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're, we're extracting all the minerals out there. That's why the Amish. If you go through Lancaster, Pennsylvania, what do all the Amish have when they sow their fields? They got a little pouch out there, and it has a little bit of dust coming out of it. Well, what is it? That's wood ash. They're putting back into the soil at least a little bit of the minerals that have came out and they, you know, the trees bioaccumulate this stuff. They collect it in their, um, you know, in the fireplaces and then you put a little bit of it back out there. So yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to teach. And I got to be honest with you, it's been something of an uphill battle because the powers that shouldn't be at YouTube and those other places do not want this information to get out. Oh, no, they don't. You know, they want, you know, years ago, you know, I grew up in big farming and the um, and, and my family's still connected in it. And I know that so many of those farms, especially West Texas cotton, you know, if you're not farming three to five to 10,000 acres, you're not really farming. And and basically they just become CEOs of these little companies and they'll go loan, get millions of dollars every year to loan out and they just kind of barely pay it back. Maybe, maybe earn a little bit, but you know, the, the, the fuel people see them coming, the insurance people, the people that make the tractors, you got to go and you keep and all that keeps pushing bigger, bigger, bigger. And uh, it's just, it's gotten ridiculous. And so, uh, you know, I, I hope that we will see a time when, when the family farm and smaller units can make a comeback. And I think we will because people are tired of the junk. I think, I do think more and more people are waking up to, Hey, I've got to eat different. I, I need to, to learn how to do some things different. And, and I hope that uh, more and pe more people will wake up to these realities. 
I'll tell you, I'll tell you one more thing is that our, I think we should redefine what a farm is. You asked the great Joel Salatin. I mean, I'm, he's my mentor. He's my friend. And he even wrote the foreword to my book. Um, he, without a doubt, in my judgment is probably the greatest farmer in world history. I don't even think there was a close second. Anyway, Joel said, you, he, I remember if you ever do a tour with him, he'll ask you what makes a farm. And then you see everybody standing out there perplexed. And then he'll he'll kind of make you sweat a little bit. He'll, he'll say, what makes a farm? And people stand there. They're putting out what answers they think. And then he'll tell you. He'll finally get fed up and he'll say, the farmer. That's what makes the farm. So we tend to think that a farmer is a guy that has 1,000 acres, 100 acres, maybe even 10 acres. But you know what? We can redefine farming as being even a person. If you produce anything, you're a farmer. So if you're growing mushrooms in your closet, you're a farmer. If you're growing microgreens in a spare room in the house, you're a farmer. If you got that, you know, that zone one garden on the way when you walk into the house, you're a farmer. So when you redefine it in those terms, it makes farming a little bit more accessible to everybody out there, I think, mm -hmm. is that everybody, when you have and man, this is astonishing. Um, there was a guy, he was a widower, as I recall, and he lived outside of LA. They were um, and they basically had a third of an acre. They produced 6,000 pounds of food on a third of an acre. It was wow. he and his three children. So much food, in fact, that they had to sell it, like have a farmer's market out there or just flat out give it away. Well, we've done the same thing here. Now, imagine, instead of going through Tyson and all these other conglomerates, instead of relying on those, what if, let's just say the three of us lived in a neighborhood. Let's say we lived in a city, in a neighborhood in the city. And can't grow it all at my place. And you guys can't grow it all at yours, but we can all grow a piece. So let's say I got a postage stamp backyard and all I can get is two fruit trees. So let's say I grow an apple and a peach. And then you guys each decide, okay, I'm going to grow a pear and a pomegranate. Somebody says, okay, we're in Texas. I'll grow two different kinds of figs. Well, between the six of us, my apple tree alone, when it's in production, is going to produce more fruit than all of our families combined that could eat. Mm -hmm. Okay. And think about it. Another cool thing with apples is that it's getting ripe at a time of year where everything else is kind of dying back. Mm -hmm. And then if you grow the right apples, like let's say an Arkansas black that can keep for about a year, well, gee, you got some longevity in there. You got other apples that maybe you put away. Now, okay, you guys got pears, you got peaches, you got all these other things, and this is what we got to get back to. Yes. So it's like the fingers of your hand. Maybe I'm the thumb, and I just grow this and this. Maybe I don't want to milk cows, but the lady down the road was. She does. Well, maybe I get my milk and my cheese from her, but she gets all of her beef from me. Or maybe she gets her eggs from me or her chicken, you know, whatever the case may be. These are exactly the enclaves, the mutual assistance groups that we have got to start doing. And frankly, the worse the inflation gets, I think the more we're going to be forced into doing this very thing where our food is better. It's cleaner. You know, I can't do anything about the dr stuff they're dropping from the sky, but I can do something about whether or not I buy from Monsanto. Yes. So, yeah. And that's the only way we get around it. So I just want to I want to encourage folks out there to redefine what you think your your definition of a farm is because everybody has this idealistic notion of what a farm is. We think it's the guy sitting on a tractor doing no, it doesn't have to be. It can be 
it can be your closet. It can be your spare room. That's what a farmer is. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like that. Uh, so uh, you had mentioned you have all kinds of different uh, animals on the farm. Uh, and you also talked about um, you had a video out where you said that uh, essentially you showed how much meat you would get if you took your cow to the butcher and then you opened up your freezer and you're like, it's pitiful. Right. So, and then, so on those lines, you, you had mentioned, uh, working toward, you know, butchering your own beef and that kind of thing. Um, what would it take for someone to, uh, get to that point where they have their own, where they're able to butcher their own beef? Cause it's a big sure. animal. I mean, I, I do a deer, but, uh, what different kind of th things would I need to do that? Yeah. Um, well, I know how to do all those things. I'm, I'm a classically trained butcher uh, from the local pig in Kansas City. And um, so I know how to do all those things. But here's the downside. Unless you have a way to hang that beef, you got problems. And so right. it's not accessible for most people. What you can do, if you'd like, take it into a slaughterhouse and uh you'll get it back you're they're probably going to steal a fair amount of that meat and i've talked about just how much now i would have done that cow myself and i should have i should have just told him look just you know uh slaughter gut skin basically eviscerate and then i'll come and get the halves and do it myself well the two hardest things to find in this world is an honest mechanic and an honest butcher <laughs> and they these guys will rob up they will rob you up one side and down the other, or they'll say, or they'll make themselves feel better. Like they'll steal some choice cuts you don't know about, but they'll give you ground beef of somebody else's cow that they stole it from. It's a sleazy business, but to get to that point where you can do it. Yeah. Uh, what you kind of need. And I saw some mobile versions of this. In fact, I just saw one last week and it was fantastic. You could have hung two side, no four sides of beef in there. And it was a mobile unit. All they did was took a boat trailer. It was crazy. Put a cool bot air conditioner on it, and then just kind of made a structure around it. And then, of course, they had a rail system where you could hang the cow on the gambrel. What makes a cow more challenging is that you really ought to let this thing hang for a while, let that meat kind of come around a little bit. Now, there's going to be debate as far as how long you could do it. Um, you're lucky in most cases. They'll tell you that they age it a week or two. In most cases, you're lucky if they did it a couple of days. And you can usually tell that if you can look at the side of the beef and determine whether or not there's a pellicle on the meat. Mm -hmm. Anyway, to get to that point, what you would probably want, uh, you, yeah, you're going to need a means in which to hang that meat. Now, what you could do is you don't have to make it a very big structure. And let's say instead of hanging a whole side, you could break it down into primal cuts and then hang each one of those cuts and then give it three weeks to a month. And that way you're drawing all that moisture out of there. All the enzymes are going to work. That meat's getting more and more tender. These are all the things that you can do on a homestead that you can't necessarily do, that you can't really trust them to do in the slaughterhouse. So, and then plus, if you do it in the slaughterhouse, I mean, we're all, we're homesteaders. We're in this thing to try to save as much money as possible. Well, if you leave that animal in there for, let's say 30 days or, you're taking up locker space. And so the time they're going to charge you rent for that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you can quarter that animal up and then do it on your place, that's even better. 
But honestly, these days I'm encouraging everybody, if you want to get into a larger animal, consider sheep. It's the, um, or deer, you know, you got to go out and go hunt the deer. But if you want some, I process a sheep the same exact way I process a deer. I know a lot of the good old boys out there think I'm crazy, but instead of just ripping out the back straps of a deer, well, I do something a little more elegant, you know, because of my classical butcher training. I'm like, okay, I can sit here and rip out that tenderloin in the back strap, or I can make deer T-bones or deer porterhouses. You can do that. And um, it's it, instead of taking that whole loin, I mean, it's a more elegant way of doing it. In fact, I do have a video of me doing uh, breaking down a deer like that and making some pretty awesome cuts that most people will never see on a deer. But it's never going to happen. You're never going to find a Dorper sheep or a Katahdin sheep in a butcher shop, not even a high-end place. The only way to get this meat that is absolutely sublime, in my opinion, is to grow it. So it's also one of the best gateway four-legged animals outside of rabbits to get you into doing it. But yeah, um, as far as getting yeah. to do a cow, you're going to need some way to hang that animal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we we do the Dorper sheep here, and and we do take it to a butcher, but uh, but my children are interested in maybe one day uh, you know trying to process on our own uh, through you know they've watched Jake and my youngest has has killed a couple of deer and skinned them on his own and um, and so you know he feels like he could probably do the you know, do, do a sheep cause it's pretty much the same process. And I do know that when we take it to the butcher here, uh, he charges more to process the deer, uh, for the deer hunters, uh, than he does the sheep. So yep. that, you know, that, that it's a little bit cheaper and he can work us in a little bit better. We kind of have to work around the hunting season. We know that we can't take him one during hunting season because he's booked. Yeah. So we kind of do it. And sometimes we'll even call him and, you know, make sure he's got an opening and, um, you know, that, 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 that works, but, uh, but yeah, we would like to, to eventually try it on our own. Well, deer is a little more difficult and I'll tell you why, because when you process a deer, well, when you do a, when you do a sheep, the awesome thing about it is there's no, there's almost no silver skin, nowhere near as much as there is on a deer. I mean, you have all that connective tissue and you, if you leave it on there, let's say you make a roast. Like every hind quarter in a deer, okay, you got a rump roast, you got a chuck roast, and you got steaks in there. You got a sirloin, depending on how you cut it. Um, but you're always going to be dealing with that silver skin. So it's more difficult to process when it comes to deer. But it is a very, very elegant kind of meat. I would highly suggest anybody wanting to know how to do this. I got free videos over on my YouTube channel of doing deer and sheep, and I do them exactly the same. In fact, I think if processors you know, they got to be able to get them through quick. You know, you can't right. take the time to do it the way I do. But if you really want the most elegant way of doing this, I'm talking the stuff that you would see at fine dining. It doesn't take any longer. It is easy. I mean, you could follow me step by step for the most part in the videos that I put out there. So, um, yeah, that that's not behind a paywall or anything like that. So you can uh, do a deer, do a... I mean, man, in fact, the thumbnail picture on that video, I'm pretty proud of because I'm like, man, it kind of lays it out there because any hunter that has ever taken in your deer to a processor, you know, for a fact, you did not get it back the way I'm showing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And probably didn't even get your deer back. <laughs> you got whatever yeah. one came off the pile. That is, that is one of my biggest, that is like 
that is like unjust weights and measures in my yeah. book, man. Because yeah. I took the, you took that Dorper in, for example, you raised it a way that you thought was, you know, the best way to raise it. Or that deer, you know, I took real careful when I skinned him not to make, not to get into the metatarsal gland mm. or to make sure that that animal was cooled off as quickly as possible. I made sure of all those things. And it's the biggest slap in the face when I bring in my deer and I'm getting back somebody else's meat or I like that cow you saw in the video. I was furious because, and that's why I came out with that video. Like, let me tell you about all the cuts these, um, these butchers are stealing from you. You're not going to tell me a hanging weight of a half, okay, half of a steer. And you're going to tell me a, I get back 100, 113 pounds of meat for yeah. half a steer? Yeah, no. And I'm like, okay, never again. I will break this sucker down. I will do it myself. I will take it in. All I'm going to pay you for is locker space until I can build a place out here. Yeah. But sadly, this stuff goes on way more than you know. So, I mean, what if you're a person that, okay, let's say you raised a, um, Grass raised, grass finished cow. Okay, so let let's say you took twenty eight months to do that. That takes a while. To a grass finish, I mean, you're looking twenty eight months, and then all that meat that I get back under plastic. You mean to tell me it came from Joe Blow down the road that was you know finishing them on corn? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I'm not critical of those people. I'm just glad people are producing food. But I'm yeah. just saying it's the butcher's trade. And it, it's 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 really uh, it, it's really it's really a dirty business. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, but, and I can testify to you know how you finish an animal. We we had a, a Dorper and some friends wanted one, and they took one and raised it, and they fed it grain. They fed it a lot of corn, and um, when they butchered it, they shared some of that that meat with us and. It was weird. It was super greasy. Uh, it had just had a wang to it, and we were we actually threw. I think we ended up making it dog food. We've got four great, you know, Pyrenees, and uh, so they were happy to have have it. But uh, you know, there's such a difference in what you feed the animal and 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 how the meat is, and uh, you know, there there's a huge difference with the grass uh, grass fed animal for sure. You'll yeah, always I, know. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You'll always know. Okay. Here's a, here's a telltale sign. I can tell you whether or not that animal was raised on grain in a feedlot just by one little test, and you can do it. It works on chickens, works on just about every animal. If you can take your hands and put them under warm water in the sink and wash it off, that animal was raised in the, in the most – on chickens, it's easy because if the fat is yellow, that is always a wonderful sign. That yellow fat is sublime. It is absolutely wonderful. But every other animal, because they, in most cases, they're going to have a, a layer of fat. If you're able to touch that fat and put your hands under warm water, and if it doesn't just come off, then you know that that animal was either raised on concrete or raised on corn or GMO corn. It's usually a telltale sign. Interesting. That is. Along those lines, uh, uh, before I get to my last question, um, just because it kind of ties in with what we're talking about uh, and also circles back to what kind of where we started with uh, Sabbath. I heard a, an explanation that kind of went this way and it had, and the example was using uh, uh, farm animals. So uh, take those sheep that you're raising special, right? Um, and you have a, say you have seven sheep that you're raising 
Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you tell your son, okay, uh, Billy's going to come over and he's going to get a sheep from me and I need you to take him up there and bring back the seventh sheep because I've raised that one special just for Billy. And then, uh, the kid goes up and he just grabs the closest one and brings him down. He's like, and, uh, as the father, you're like, well, um, did you, did you get the seventh one? He's like, well, I just grabbed one. It's like, well, I set that one aside specifically for Billy and you're bringing me the wrong sheep. So it's that idea of doesn't matter which day. Yeah. It's the specific day that I told you, right? <laughs> It's, it, so it, that's, that's kind of a, an example of why the Sabbath is important to do on the Sabbath day is because it's been set aside specifically for a purpose and you're bringing me, you know, suboptimal sheep. <laughs> so it's just I kinda, like the parallel, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a good example that I, I heard early on when I fir- kind of first started keeping Sabbath. So, so my last question is... What is the best set of knives to get for processing your animals? Yeah, the um, the perfect answer is going to be very expensive. So I'm going to give you the uh, <laughs> the one that most people are going to um, the one that's accessible. Victorinox is pretty hard to beat when it comes to just starting out. They make good quality. I mean, it's basically Swiss Army stuff. They make good quality stuff that's easily sharpened. And the price is right. So, you know, I you can go out there and spend a lot of money on Japanese knives. Well, that is, and they work great until that is, until my wife gets a hold of it. And then she'll, I'll catch her in the garden digging something or just cutting rocks with it. I don't, I, I don't know what it is with her. But yeah, I, I got some pretty high-end knives and somehow, dude, it, it's like, um, you know, it, it, Around here, if she gets a hold of one of my knives, man, it better be made out of that stuff that's on Wolverine skeleton, man. Yeah. Like adamantium or something like yeah. that. Because I don't know what she does, man. She could break a ball bearing when it comes to the some of this stuff. But yeah, so even my Japanese knives, I gotta hide those. Otherwise, I'll find them. She'll be doing something with them that she <laughs> ought not to be doing. <laughs> Victorinox is hard to beat. I would also recommend that people get a 17 and a half inch cam lock. Uh, K-A-M lock um, bone saw if you don't have a sawzall. I always teach things by hand. I don't use any electrical gadgets or anything like that because I'm like, okay, if you can do it by hand, you can always go the other way. But right, honestly, I see too many people when you cut an animal down the sagittal plane, which is basically down the middle of the spine, if you don't know what you're doing with that sawzall, man, I've seen some disasters going <laughs> left and right. So if you do it with a hand saw, it teaches you a little bit more respect for that animal. So, uh, yeah, Victorinox, if you're doing a sheep, I, I would go all the way up. Victorinox 10-inch uh, should do pretty much anything you ha- have, and I, I would call that a breaking knife. Victorinox 10-inch and then a Victorinox 6 uh, or 8-inch uh, flexible boning knife. Um, in addition to that, I would put in a... Camlock, uh, 17 and a half inch. They also make a 21 inch. That's for doing cows. Um, and I would also get, it's not necessary, but I love to do it for all my lamb chops and stuff like that, that I cover up 
instead of sawing through each individual cut, you can do that if you want, but if you can get a cleaver, a really high-end cleaver, and then baton with a mallet, the cleaver through, it makes a beautiful, because it's not just, it's an art form. You're not just processing meat. I mean, you spent mm -hmm. the time to really raise this animal. Man, I really want to respect it on the back end. I want to use every piece of it. I'm going to compost the things I don't eat or get, or like you said a moment ago, they go to the dogs. Um, so yeah, uh, Victorinox is pretty hard to beat. Those things is a basic kit. Obviously you want a means to sharpen it, but Victorinox is pretty doggone hard to beat out of the gates. Now there's a lot of custom knife makers out there, but you know, when I teach butchery classes, I got a bunch of German knives that, you know, I allow people to beat up because I know they're going to absolutely destroy them. Right. So or I'm just you know, carving on bones. Or something. Yes. Yes. And I'm like, okay. What are you whittling that thing into? <laughs> well, for most butchery, you figure for most butchery, you're only using the first quarter inch of that knife mm -hmm. for the most part. I mean, when you're doing, when I'm cutting an animal into primals, that's the only time I'm ever going to use a saw. Um, and I teach it the old school way, the way I was taught where you do everything with hand tools. Now, American butchery these days, well, they want you to have a bandsaw. They want you to do all this stuff. Well, most people don't have access to that stuff, and that's not the way I teach it. So whether if you watch my deer processing or any of my um, processing of any of the sheep I do, or it doesn't matter the animal, it's always going to be done with hand, hand tools, without a doubt. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. Well, and we want to be mindful of your time. We know it's late uh, where you are a little later. And um, Jake, is there anything else you want to say? No, just uh, it was good having you on. And uh, we enjoyed talking with you. And uh, I think you have a lot to uh, to offer in your in your uh, YouTube channel and on your podcast. And I would just encourage people to check it out. And uh, we just appreciate you coming on. Well, if anybody's going to be in the area, Organic Grower School, I'll be speaking it there. There's other conferences going on. I don't, I don't really do many of those these days. But um, you know, if you ever want to see some of this stuff in person, uh, there are workshops and places and stuff like that. Where, you know, you got Mountain Readiness Fence Festival that's going on, and uh, you can you can definitely find us at all. You know, whether it's the podcast, the YouTube channel, or one of these places in person. It's it's one of those things where I've become something of a recluse. And the only time I ever really care to get out is when I'm going to be in the company of other people like the ones I'm talking to right now. So right. Yeah. Um, I, I probably ought to expose myself a little bit more, but I got to guard this sanity of mine. Um, yeah. 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 So no, it, it was a joy to be on with you guys. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, we really appreciate the time. I appreciate the quotes. I wrote down some great quotes. Uh, the price of everything and the value of nothing. I've heard you say that before. Uh, I like that one a lot. And I like what you said about adversity makes men, um, I think it was prosperous. No, no, adversity makes men, prosperity makes monsters. Yeah, that was Victor Hugo that said that. I, I guess I need to be quoting these people as I say it. I mean... <laughs> Man, catch me on the right day, man. I, I'll come out with a whole gang of Mark Twain, which is probably some of the best. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I love. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to find better than Mark Twain. But yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. So all of those, I mean, some of those might be indigenous to me, but by and large, it's usually people that I've read. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess I should be given attribution. I love those quotes. Those were great. And but we appreciate you taking time. And then we ask our audience and listeners to go check him out. It's not it, it just takes a minute. You can Google and you find him the uh, permaculture pod or, or your name. I noticed that just page after page. So so it's pretty easy to find your content. We just ask people to go through the YouTube or the podcast or just where uh, wherever you find him. Encourage you to look at some of the cl- just a wealth of knowledge. And we appreciate you. Pray that you continue to go on your quest uh, as you. You learn more about the Sabbath, walking his rest. Yeah. yeah. So want to encourage you with that. So, but yeah, you've been a blessing to us this evening. And uh, if you'll stay on the line uh, just for a second, we want to make sure this finishes recording. And, uh, but I think we're about ready to sign off. Uh, Billy, any last words? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God should bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil been a blessing to be on with you guys.